All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, I had a very nice, grabby intro for you uh, involving J.R. Tolkien, uh, but because in the interest of time, I've decided I'm just going to cut it out. Uh, but just know your interest has been grabbed. You think J.R. Tolkien's amazing, and we're talking about angels and demons this morning. Check. Great. We did it. Okay. Uh, so, Uh, One of the reasons I needed to cut that out is I need to say a few preliminary things before we kind of trace this theme throughout the scriptures. Uh, One of those first things is that this uh, teaching is not a theology, uh, a systematic theology of angels and demons. This semester is about biblical themes, which means tracing a story from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation. Uh, If we were doing just, uh, here's what everything the Bible says about angels and demons, uh, a few different kind of, it would be be a different emphasis. I may may say a lot of the same things that I'm about to say, but it would be a different emphasis. So there will be things left unsaid, uh, and I just want to be clear uh, at the outset here. If you have questions, I know there are a lot of questions, a lot of, uh, what about this? What what, what does the Bible say about this? Or whatever with with angels and demons. Uh, feel free to email me. Feel free to ask for lunch or coffee. I'm more than happy to do that, talk through some of these things. Uh, or, of course, you can always ask them in Q&A. Uh, of course, it's up to Jared if your question actually gets read. Um, uh, but that is, uh, I just want you to know that that's available to you. Human history has an on-again, off-again relationship with angels and demons. Shai Lin, Christian rapper, who I am fond of quoting, has a very good song that, that captures this well. The song's called Cosmic Power. So let me, let me read this quote uh, from, from the song. He says, Their leader is Satan, the fowler with the snare. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air, the lowercase god of this world, a reign of terror, tempting people to make one of two major errors. One is saying he's not responsible for anything. The other is saying he's responsible for everything. So one part of the church, all they do is speak on him. The other part is just as bad because they sleep on him. So what's he saying? He's saying, right, some churches have this emphasis, this big fixation on angels and demons. And, you know, we need to, you know, bind the spiritual powers or, or whatever. We need a fo- that's, it's a, like deliverance ministry will be common in those kind of churches. Uh, they have an over-spiritualized worldview where everything is attributed to Satan or the demonic. Uh, And of course, some things should be, but we are sinners. We have sinful hearts, and so some things are simply the products of our flesh. But the opposite error is also out there, which is probably, I think, more common in the West. Uh, Although, uh, I think this, I have a sense this is changing. I have a sense we're going more back towards the new agey kind of fixation on uh, spiritual forces and things like that. Um, But uh, this quote from Rudolf Boltmann, who's a, a liberal a uh, theologian from the, the 20th century, uh, kind of captures where a lot of people are also at on this. Uh, you don't have to read anything else by Rudolf Boltmann. It's trash, but this is what he says. He says, We cannot use electric lights and radios, and in the event of illness, avail ourselves of modern medical and clinical means, and at the same time, believe in the spirit and wonder world of the New Testament. It's a pretty st- stark, shocking statement from someone who was a professor of the New Testament, uh, right? But he's, what's he saying there? He's saying, you know, we, we can't live in the world when we live in and really think all this spiritual stuff is, is real. And that's the kind of operational assumption of many people in our world. 
today. And uh, as I've already alluded to a little bit, both of those errors are complicated by the fact that there's so much trash out there about what people think about these these things. So there's so many uh, pseudo-Christian ideas saying, here's what the demonic is like, here's what angels are like. Uh, that, that we often, even in uh, faithful evangelical churches, we're drinking in a lot of these things, whether we know it or not. Uh, so I do hope uh, this morning there will be some, some corrective work that, uh, that uh, we will be able to evaluate the world in which we live and the things that are being said about angels and demons uh, in light of the clear teaching of Scripture. I'll also say here at the beginning, you don't have to agree with everything I'm going to say this morning. Uh, I will try to be clear when there's room for disagreement, uh, but uh, for the most part, I will, uh, for the most part, well, yeah. I will, I will say, leave it at that. There will be things I say that I'll say, you don't have to agree, but that's okay. Here's what the Bible seems to be saying to me. Okay, one final preliminary matter before we dive into our biblical theme. We need clarity on terminology. So I will be saying angels and demons uh, throughout uh, this morning. The Bible uses a ton of different words for them. I've listed like 10 or something, like 12 uh, for you there. This is not an exhaustive list. The references are not exhaustive. But all of these are different ways the Bible might refer to angels, might refer to demons, might refer to both of them. Uh, there is uh, some debate whether each of these maybe refers to slightly different uh, kinds of angels or demons. So like are, are cherubim and seraphim the same thing? Are they different things? Uh, I'm inclined to think that they're the same. Uh, I could be wrong. Uh, but it's, at the very least, it seems to be something like if I were to say, uh, you know, Malamutes, Schnauzers, and Chihuahuas. You know I'm talking about dogs, right? They're a little bit different but they're all dogs, right? Uh, so th- that may be what these different terms are, are referring to. It's not entirely clear. Uh, again, there is a lot of bad theology about here's exactly what a watcher is. Here's exactly what a seraphim is. Uh, and the Bible doesn't, doesn't give us uh, more than, than what we have here. It just uses these terms and uh, kind of leaves it at that. So, uh, yeah, so as we see those words in the passages we're going through, just be aware that, uh, that those are referring to angels, demons, or, or both. Okay, with all that done, uh, we're going to trace these storylines, and I say storylines because this is going to be plural this morning, because we're going to treat them separately. First, we're going to look at the story of demons from creation uh, to consummation, and then we will look at the story of angels. I'll just say now, the story for demons is much longer and detailed because the story for angels is pretty much always the same. They're just doing the same thing always, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So, we'll start at the beginning, because according to the sound of music, it's a very good place to start. So, creation. In the beginning, all of the angelic hosts, angels and those that would become demons, praised their creator. That is where everything started. Uh, You might be wondering, I have human timeline here on your notes for you. You might be wondering, when was that? When were angels and demons made? Uh, The answer is we're not quite sure. The Bible doesn't really give us that. It doesn't describe that uh, specifically for us. Uh, Augustine, uh, early church father, believed they were made on the first day of Genesis. Uh, Most will argue they were made before the six days, which is the the view I'm inclined towards. Uh, Before the six days, uh, they were Uh, They were created by God. Uh, The hardest evidence, the clearest thing we have, right, is Genesis 3. Because at that point, the serpent, Satan, spoiler alert, 
uh, is uh, in the garden. He has already himself fallen and is seeking to tempt Adam and Eve. Uh, so whatever, yeah, by the time Genesis 3 rolls around, they've clearly been made, angels and demons, and the demons and Satan have fallen. Uh, I'm inclined to think, again, they were, this happened before the days of creation because of what we find in Job chapter 38. This is a, a really helpful passage. So this is where the Lord is speaking to Job. He's, he's kind of rebuking him for, his, uh, for his, some of the assumptions he's made. And the Lord says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstones? This is all creation language, right? This is when he's making the universe. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. All the sons of God shouted for joy. So when God made the cosmos, it seems to be the case that all the sons of God, which is language for angels and what would become demons, were there, were watching. Uh, but specifically what's important is they were shouting for joy. They were looking at what God was doing in creation and they were like, this is amazing, this is beautiful, what a joyful thing. How great is God? He's making the cosmos. Uh, so they're, they're praising God for his creativity uh, and the most important thing to realize about this, the most important uh, element at the beginning of the demonic timeline is that we're not tracing any kind of dualism. Demons and Satan himself at the beginning were made and were made good. It is not the case that there are two eternal cosmic forces, one good, one evil, that have been doing battle for, through millennia and we'll see who's going to win kind of thing or anything like that. It's not like two equal eternal things. It is God who is alone and supreme and eternal and then everything that he's made. And Satan and demons started out good uh, and eventually, as we'll see in a minute, fell. But there is no yin and yang. There's no balance in the force. There is one supreme God and everything is subject to him, was made by him. But then something happened. That brings us to the second epoch of demonic history, the fall. Some of the angelic hosts rejected their creator. Some of them rejected their creator. So the Bible describes this as a fall. Look at Luke chapter 10. Jesus is talking to his disciples. We'll come back to this passage actually later and see some of the context. It's really interesting. But it says, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So clearly there is a fall that has taken place. There are a couple of places in the Bible that give us actually even a little more detail about that fall. I think one of the clearest is Revelation chapter 12. Uh, this is now one of the points where I'm going to say you don't have to agree with me on this passage specifically. Uh, some other people will have different interpretations of Revelation 12, the timeline of when that's taking place. But it seems to me that it's describing the original fall of Satan and the demons. Part of the reason I think that is there's other passages like Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 that describe a similar thing in a similar way. So look at, at Revelation chapter 12. Now... War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. 
And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan. How clear could that be? Like The dragon, the ancient serpent, a.k.a. Genesis 3, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Do you know who we're talking about? Yes, okay. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So here and in other passages that, uh, again, uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that seem to describe this same event, there's some similar themes that, that pop up each time. So, for instance, the pride of Satan. He, had, he made some attempt to take God's place, to take his throne, or some war against God uh, and his angels, and he was defeated and thrown down to the earth. So, again, on the human timeline, when did that happen? Uh, we're not quite sure, but it must have preceded Genesis 3. So, Genesis 3, we know Satan has fallen. He's on the earth. Uh, He is that ancient serpent, right? Uh, And he is attempting to deceive Adam and Eve. So the demonic fall must have preceded the fall of man. That much is very clear. But then what happened? What happened next? We, We know the beginning of the story. Probably everything I've said so far, you're like, Great, I know that. Satan fell, he rebelled against God or something, some pride. Uh, And then, you know, he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. And we usually think the rest of the Old Testament says nothing about demons or Satan. Uh, That is not true. That is not actually the evidence of the Old Testament. The Old Testament says quite a bit about them, and that's what we're going to trace. I'll tell you now what is going on. Uh, In most of the Old Testament period, actually the whole Old Testament period after Genesis 3, the nations are given over to the rule of Satan and his fallen angels. The nations are given over to them. They reign on the earth. So what we're doing when we trace one of these biblical themes, when we uh, kind of look at whatever, like the serpent crusher theme Jared did or Tim did beauty and glory, uh, we're kind of getting these little glimpses Throughout the scripture, it's not just like one chapter, tell, sometimes it is, but it's not often the case that one chapter of the Bible traces the whole story for us. So we're kind of picking up these pieces, tracing this red thread throughout the scriptures. Uh, and uh, it's, it's like we're looking into a home and just getting little peeps in the windows. Uh, I got that illustration from Jared. We were talking about this in staff meeting, and Tim said, yeah, we're like biblical peeping toms. Uh, how, how creepy is that? Disturbing image. Uh, but the image, right, is that uh, we're looking into windows. We're trying to get a sense of the whole house. Uh, and so we can say some things for sure. That's the living room. This is what it looks like. But some things are less clear. Uh, there are some elements of this park that are less clear, but there is more than we probably realize in the Old Testament. We can get more glimpses than we would often uh, think. Uh, So to see that, the the first question we need to ask is, when Satan and the demons fell, where did they go? We know they 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 were in the garden right after they fell, but but then, then what happened? And the important thing to remember is when they were kicked out of heaven, Revelation 12, They went to the earth. Satan and the demons do not reign in hell. It's kind of a common idea out there. That's like Satan's domain, right? He reigns there. That's not actually what the Bible says. The Bible actually says he reigns on the earth. We're going to look at a couple passages to see how this works. So the first here is Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High, that's God, gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. 
This is a really interesting thing. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Okay, so what it seems to be going on here is Moses is drawing some connection between the number of the nations on the earth, uh, which uh, went out after Babel, and the number of the sons of God, which is biblical language for uh, angels. And I think specifically here, I think it's specifically talking about demons. Uh, it's still not quite clear, though. It's, a, it's just like one verse, like, what's going on? This is weird, right? I, I've never heard this. This, this is odd. Uh, I've cross-referenced there for you Daniel 10 and Deuteronomy 4, which also talk about this. Deuteronomy 4, a similar point is made. It's where uh, Israel is, is warned against worshiping the host of heaven, uh, which it says it has been given for the nations of the earth to worship. Again, that's language of the, the demonic, right? The nations worship the demons who rule over them, which is what we find in uh, Psalm 106. But they, it's Israel, mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, okay? They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons, Easy to miss that one, right? Their idols and the demons are being equated. The, na- the idols, the gods, lowercase g, that the nations worship are being equated to the demons. It seems that we're talking about the same, uh, same group here. The worship of the pagan nations, which infiltrated Israel, went to demons. And I think the clearest passage in the whole Bible on this is Psalm 82. I almost put the whole psalm here for you, uh, but I'll just, I'll just give you the, the beginning and the end of it. So look at, look at your notes here, Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, okay, we've got to think about who that is. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. He says this, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. I said... You are gods, this is God speaking to someone else, some other group. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you, God, shall inherit all the nations. So verse 1, this is divine counsel. These are the lowercase g gods, which we're talking about spiritual beings here. Verse 2, God has a major problem with them. So they're not angels, okay? That should be clear immediately. He's not talking to angels, this group, because he's saying you are doing bad things. And what is his problem with them? His problem is that they are evil rulers. They are evil rulers. They don't judge justly. They're showing partiality to the wicked. They're not giving justice to the weak and fatherless. They are evil rulers. So, verse 7, he's going to destroy them. In verse 8, he himself, God, capital G, will inherit all the nations. So, what are these passages showing us? How do we put all this together? Well, uh, Michael Heiser who wrote a really good book on this, uh, The Unseen Realm. It's in your notes in the book recommendations. Uh, I think I put a note in there. If you do read that book, tell me, because uh, it's, it's good. It'll help you understand this theme. It's one of the best I could recommend. 
He has some views I disagree with very strongly. Uh, he hates Calvinists, for one, uh, which is okay. You can hate Calvinists, but he's wrong about that. Um, and he, he says a couple things in there that uh, I think I have concerns about his, uh, his evangelical convictions. I'll leave it at that. Um, but it is a very good book that, with discernment, you can learn a lot about this. So uh, he, in his book, calls this a system of delegated divine oversight. A system of delegated divine oversight. That's fancy language. It seems to be the case, from these passages we've just looked at, that there is a, quote, uh, the nations have been given over to a sponsor demon. You don't have to agree with that language specifically, but some kind of sponsor demon who exercises some kind of spiritual rule over each one of the nations, uh, the pagan nations, not Israel, uh, who in return worship that demon. He's their lowercase g, God. It's like a risk board, right, where each demon has their own nation on the earth, uh, and they're all together on the side of Satan, who's their master, and Yahweh's portion, his nation, is Israel. So that's the one other color player on the risk board. If you don't know risk, I'm sorry, it's the greatest board game ever. Uh, but uh, that's the one little you know, outlier, and everyone else is on the same team, and it's just this one. Here's Yahweh's portion, Israel. Uh, so for this part of the story, Satan and his demons reigned over the nations. That's what's happening throughout the entire Old Testament. Uh, if you're not convinced, you're probably wondering, do we see that in the New Testament at all? Maybe that's a new idea for you. Uh, actually, I think the New Testament is even clearer on this. So again, you don't have to agree specifically that there's a sponsor demon per nation or something like that. Seems to be what uh, Deuteronomy 32 is saying, but... That's like the only passage we get that makes that point. Uh, but the New Testament does clearly talk about Satan as the, the god of this world. That's 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, it talks about demons as the rulers and authorities. Uh, and Matthew 4, I think, is one of the clearest passages. So I'll just read this one for you. Matthew 4, verse 8. This is Jesus' temptation. It says, The devil took him, Jesus, to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, in their glory, and he said, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. All these kingdoms of the world I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Let me suggest, brothers and sisters, Satan is not making an empty promise. He can give Jesus the nations of the world because he is their king at this point in the story. They serve, they worship him. And Jesus, though, of course, says, no, I'm not going to take the nations for myself that way. I will take the nations for myself, but it will not involve submitting to you. It will involve defeating you. So God has given the nations over to Satan and his demons. They fell to the earth. God gave them the peoples of the earth, but just temporarily. Just temporarily, uh, because Jesus is going to take the nations back. Uh, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll get to that in, in one second. Uh, a brief word I want to say. Uh, there are, so I think what I've just traced for you, this Old Testament picture of, uh, of demonic rule over the nations, I think that is clear uh, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, that, that throughout the Old Testament, the demons ruled. Again, the sponsor demon thing, one demon per nation, you don't have to agree with that. There's just one verse that 
I'm not quite sure that's exactly what it's saying, but it seems to be the case. Um, but be careful about making too much of that. There are all kinds of, uh, in the context I'm more familiar with, missionary practices that will talk about we need to go into this land and we need to identify whatever the demon is of this land and bind it. And that is the way to do missions and get the gospel into this place. That is never, ever, ever the picture the Bible gives. The Bible says, preach the gospel, uh, exhort people who believe to holiness, and that's what we're called to do. That's missions. It's not, you know, we need to identify, find, and bind the demon of this land or whatever. Um, so be careful about making too much of that. Uh, when did this happen? When did the nations, uh, be, when did God give them over to the rule of Satan and the demons? I'm guessing Babel, that's the point Michael Heiser makes in that book, The Unseen Realm. Uh, it's, it's not entirely clear. It's not spelled out for us. That makes sense because that's when the nations actually spread about, when they kind of appear. We'll talk a lot about Babel actually next week in uh, Theological Equipping. I'm teaching on division and unity. Um, but anyway, uh, when that happened is not clear. But what is clear is the next date in the timeline. The next date, uh, the next epoch for uh, this story is 33 A.D., where Jesus is the climax of this story. It's the demon story, but always, 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 every story in the Bible, Jesus is the peak of the mountain. This is where he shows up and gives them their decisive defeat at the cross. So uh, before we get to the cross, let's say a brief word about the buildup, the, the conflict that shows up, that intensifies throughout Jesus' ministry. So if you've been with us here on Sunday mornings, uh, we've been tracing throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus preaching, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. We see that in Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we've tried on Sunday mornings to, I think, every time, uh, move the needle a little bit every time it's mentioned to help you understand exactly what that means because there's a whole lot we can say about it. But one thing that must be said that's very clear is the kingship of God necessarily means the, uh, the un kingship, the, uh, the, the dethroning of Satan and the spiritual forces that rule the nations. If God is going to be king of everywhere, it means that the, the rulers of those places, the demons that we've just seen in the Old Testament, will be overthrown. That's what the kingship, the kingdom of God necessarily means. And that's what happens throughout Jesus' ministry, right? The demonic rule just begins to crumble. So Jesus meets a demon, and what happens? They completely pee their pants. I mean, that's like not that much of an exaggeration, right? They freak out. They see Jesus coming at them, and they have, first of all, they pee their pants, and then all they can do is beg, beg, beg that he lets them go. They can't even run away without Jesus saying go. It's amazing. He's so in control. He's so sovereign over them. Even his disciples have power over them. So Luke chapter 10, after Jesus sends out the 72, it says, they return with joy, his disciples saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So even Jesus' disciples have this authority, this power 
to overthrow and cast out the demonic. But, but why this conflict, right? Why, why during Jesus' ministry is this conflict ramping up? Uh, it's, I think it's clearly because Satan and his minions don't like what Jesus is up to. They know he's here to kick them out, to take them off the throne, and they're not happy about it. So uh, J.I. Packer has a, a really good quote about this. Uh, I can't remember what book it's from. I should have put it there. But anyway, uh, J.I. Packer, famous evangelical scholar, says, The level and intensity of demonic manifestations in people during Christ's ministry was unique. That's important. It was unique. Having no parallel in Old Testament times or since, it was doubtless part of Satan's desperate battle for his kingdom against Christ's attack on it. I think I used this illustration in a sermon a few months ago. If you're playing a board game, again, my favorite board game is Risk. It's the greatest game ever made. Uh, And you realize, I will not win. It's over. So-and-so is just too powerful, too strong. I'm not going to win. What do you do? You do dumb things. You start attacking when you don't have a chance. You just, you just kind of jump out or whatever. You just, you do, you, your strategy goes out the window because you realize, I'm toast. This ain't going to happen. If you come to one of our poker nights, this is what happens when you, uh, I was going to use myself as an illustration, but I was the first one out last time. So never mind. Um, but if you realize you're going to lose, sometimes you just put all your chips in and you're like, We'll see what happens, even though I have nothing. Strategy goes out the window. That's what happens when the demons uh, see Jesus coming. They know they don't have a chance, so they're jumping out behind every corner. And that battle reaches its climax at the cross. So the New Testament authors, they describe the cross as as many things. You know this, that our debt was paid at the cross. The cost of our sin, the glory of forgiveness is at the cross. We were redeemed, we were ransomed, we were saved. But one of the things we must remember about the cross is it is also the decisive defeat of Satan and his demons. It is their decisive defeat. Defeat The promise all the way back, Genesis chapter 3.15. We have talked about this every single theological equipping this semester because it's a huge promise where God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. The crushing of the serpent is what happened at the cross. So look at, look at some of the language the New Testament describes the cross with. John 12 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, we just learned who that is, now will he be cast out. He's being cast out. 1 John 3, 8, the reason, this is a huge statement, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. It's the reason Jesus came. Probably most clearly, though, Colossians chapter 2. It's a hugely significant passage for understanding this. Paul writes, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we're familiar with all that, right? That's the cross. He canceled our record of debt, nailed it, set aside. Next verse. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Rulers and authorities, clear biblical language for demons, for Satan himself. 
He disarmed them and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him, in Christ. There is a connection between the atonement and the defeat of Satan. The cross was his, Christ's ultimate triumph over the spiritual forces of darkness. So this, uh, if you read theology, this is often referred to uh, as the Christus Victor model of the atonement or theory of the atonement. Uh, I do want to be clear, if, if you do study theology and you read maybe a systematic textbook or something like that, uh, you'll come across various models, various theories of the atonement. Uh, of how, what that means is how exactly does Christ's death save us? How does that work? Um, the foundational biblical picture is that the theory of the atonement, the model of the atonement, atonement is penal substitution. It's a fancy word, penal penalty substitution. Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. He took our penalty. That is the central model the Bible gives us of what the, how the atonement works. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place. But that does not mean all the other models, all the other theories, we just throw them out because we found the right one. Actually, I would say, not all, but most of the other models are pictures of, how, of, of the outworking of penal substitutionary atonement. So uh, penal substitution is the, the central model, but, but like a diamond, it's, that's the center, but the other sides kind of enhance it, show us more about it. So you read about what's called the moral exemplar theory of the atonement, that uh, Christ gives us a great moral example, and that's how he saves us. Well, no, that's not how he saves us, but through penal substitution, he gives us a great moral example to be followed. Uh, and the same is true of Christus Victor. He did not only save us by defeating Satan. He bore the wrath of God in our place and in doing so, defeated Satan. Because Satan had authority over us by virtue of our sin and Jesus overthrew him. That's exactly, I think, what you see in Colossians chapter 2, right? It's this clear connection between the atonement and the defeat of Satan. He nailed our sins to the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He paid our debt and in doing that, defeated the forces of darkness. So what then? What happened after that? Well, the aftermath, the church age, this is where the devil has been defeated. He's disarmed, to use Colossians 2 language, but he is not destroyed. He's limping, but he's not down for the count. All right. What I'm about to say, you don't have to agree with. We're at one of those points. You have to agree with some of it, but not all of it. I'll try to be clear about that. Uh, this next section is heavily informed by my millennial view. Uh, I'm an amillennialist, so I'm going to unpack a few passages from an amillennialist, amillennialist perspective. If you don't know what that means, that's fine. It doesn't matter that much. Um, but uh, it is important that we understand some of these things about uh, the current church age that we are in. Uh, Postmillennialists would agree with most of what I'm about to say. Premillennialists, uh, who I actually usually agree with more, uh, but they would, they'll probably disagree with most of what I'm going to say. So I don't know if I say that clearly, but anyway, uh, I'll also say our elders, we have different views among our elders on what I'm about to teach, and that should give you kind of some insight into the flexibility that we have, right? Uh, we have elders who hold this view, elders who hold this view, and they love each other and serve Christ Church together, and that's great. So it's not ultimately uh, important. Well, it is ultimately, eh, I need to be clear. It is important, but it's not nearly as important as the other things that bind us together. So before I continue rambling, let's, let's, uh, let's keep moving here. My understanding 
My understanding is that in the church age, Satan is, in a spiritual sense, bound, but still has some power. He is the ruler of this world. He has been cast out, though, but not eradicated. He is disarmed, but not destroyed. So uh, the allies, right, they won their decisive victory on D-Day, June 6, 1944. That's when we knew we were going to win World War II. But it wasn't until a year later, May 8, 1945, that victory in Europe Day actually came. So we, we too live in this in-between between the decisive victory and the final victory. We know the victory is sure. Jesus has triumphed, but Satan still is around. He, is, he still exists. He uh, is uh, powerful, though bound. The primary passage, Revelation 20, this is the millennial passage that theologians argue for decades and millennia on end uh, about. But here's what it says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. <coughs> then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, we've heard of him before, bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years, that's where the term millennium comes from. They threw him in the pit, shut it, sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So my understanding is that this is describing... The beginning of that verse is describing the age in which we now live. That at the cross, that's where Satan was bound. That's where he was, he was uh, thrown into the pit and, and shut and sealed it. But, but why? What, what is the nature of his binding? What is the purpose of his binding? It says very clearly, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. So that he might not deceive the nations and that's what happens in the church age now. The nations, although they still, uh, the godless nations of the world, godless peoples of the earth, still worship Satan in a sense. But when we go and preach the gospel to the peoples of the earth, there God works and gives them faith through the preaching of his word. So what does Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority is mine. Right, the Great Commission passage. He says, go make disciples of all nations. What is the basis on which we can go and make disciples of all the nations? The fact that all the authority has been given to Jesus. It's not Satan's. It's not the demon's. It belongs to Christ. All authority is his. Therefore, missions is possible because the deceiver of the world has been disarmed. His authority has been taken. It's what God promised back in Psalm 82, remember? God himself will inherit the nations. So that salvation, the reception of the gospel, is described, Acts 26, when Jesus appears to Paul, he describes salvation as turning from the power of Satan to God. That's what's happening when someone believes the gospel. They're turning from their former overlord to the risen Jesus. They're turning from the power of Satan to God. He is bound in a spiritual sense, but he is still working his nefarious Plots, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So we don't say he's bound, therefore don't worry about it. Resist the devil. That's what the Bible says again and again. He's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the spiritual reality in which we live. Yes, we can preach and God gives faith, but... 
uh, Satan is not yet destroyed. Uh, that's, that's where we stand now. Again, you don't have to agree on all those details, but uh, you do have to agree about the next part. What's coming is very, very clear. No matter what your millennial view, one day, on the last day, the devil and his demons will experience final destruction. They will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal torment. D-Day will result in V-E-Day, victory in Europe. The final victory over darkness, which was secured at the cross, will come in full. That's the second half of, of Revelation chapter 20. In the interest of time, I'm already going long. I won't read it for you, but it's there. Uh, the devil is ultimately defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. We also see that in Matthew 25. This is just assumed. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. End of story. God wins. Boom. Satan will be destroyed. So that's our first story. I know we have like eight minutes, but we'll move quickly. The next one's fast. We switch now to angels. As I warned you, this is much quicker because angels are always doing the same thing. Right, so demons, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Angels, it's pretty consistent uh, because they never fell. So they're always doing one of, of two things. They're praising God for his works and they are doing work on behalf of God. They're serving him. Now, those two roles kind of correspond to the two images the Bible gives us of angels. Two images we get are that of singers and that of soldiers. Uh, so, right, we usually think there's the tough military guy and there's the, you know, artsy guy who likes to write poetry and they're not friends. Uh, angels are two in one. They're both of those things wrapped up into one. They sing songs of praise to God uh, and they fight war on behalf of God. That's what we saw in Revelation 12. They are the ultimate warrior poets. Uh, the Lord, right, is called the Lord of hosts throughout the Old Testament. What does that mean? It means he's got all these armies of angels at his beck and call doing whatever he tells them. He's the Lord of hosts. He has these armies of angels, but they're also constantly praising God. Often when you come across them, especially in the book of Revelation or in the Psalms or in Job, they're praising God. So that's what they were doing at the beginning. I won't read Job 38 for you again, but they're praising God. They're exalting his creativity. They're amazed at him. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, in... Uh, well, yeah, move to the next section here. The fall of man, right? They're serving God's purposes. So uh, humanity falls and a cherub is placed to guard the holy place, to guard the garden with a flaming sword so, they don't, so that no one gets in. They're soldiers. They have swords. They are warriors. Uh, and, and they're also praising God throughout uh, the Old Testament period for uh, his, his wonderful works. They're amazed at everything God can do, and they're, they're serving his people. So I have a few examples here for you. Uh, uh, yeah, Daniel 6, that's the lion's den. Daniel 10, that's where uh, an angel shows up and says, I was just doing battle with the prince of Persia. Uh, and again, that kind of gives us this image of, of demons ruling over different areas. Um, Exodus 23, their angels are used to guide God's people. 2 Samuel 24, they bring judgment even on God's people themselves. Um, there are many other examples of what angels are doing throughout the Old Testament period, but that kind of captures the gist, right? They're serving whatever God is doing. That's what the angels are all about. They're, okay, God, tell me what to do. I'm doing it. Uh, and they're also praising God for all these things. But they're not, they're not that involved in the Old Testament as, they, as we see them so much 
is in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, angels, uh, their role really seems to blow up like crazy, partly because what God is doing becomes so beautiful and glorious, they're just like amazed at every turn. So uh, you have it uh, there in your notes. When Christ is born, the angels show up and they're just singing praises to God. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, they, they are amazed at uh, what God is, is doing throughout all eternity. They sing the song of the Lamb, Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. So they're singing praises to God. Again, they're, they're working and they're praising. They're amazed in the church. Again, in the interest of time, I won't read this whole Ephesians 3 passage. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at this next week. So look forward to that. Uh, but say, I'll just read the underlined part there. Through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. I think that's angels and demons there. But they're, they're looking at what God is doing in the church in reconciling Jew and Gentile. And angels are going, wow. Wow, God is wise. They are blown away. They're amazed at the work of God. And we see, again, not, they're not just praising, they're serving God's work. I'll do this very briefly. Uh, Hebrews 1, they're ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation. In Christ, they minister during his temptation. They strengthen him during his passion. They bear witness to his resurrection. They bear witness to Jesus' return. In the church, uh, a lot of times in Acts, you see an angel doing something, like guiding Peter to share the gospel. Like He breaks uh, Peter out of prison. Angel struck down Herod, they, they play a role in giving us the Bible. Galatians 3 and Revelation 1 give us that picture. So uh, throughout this whole time, angels are working to serve whatever God has commanded of them. Their work is constantly in obedience to God. They are his singer soldiers. And in the end, in the consummation, that, uh, that choir continues. How about this for alliteration? Consummation, constant choir continues. Man, I really am Baptist. Uh, in the end, they will continue their role forever. Right? They serve God's works. Matthew 13 says they play a role in gathering the elect, destroying the wicked at the end of time. Uh, they will also continue to praise God forever and ever and ever uh, for his wonderful works. One brief comment I want to make before we talk about application. Uh, I, just, I think this is mind-blowing that there is an ironic equivalency between angels and demons. So, uh, they were both made as God's singer soldiers, but demons fell. And you might think, that's a bummer. So angels are going to do what they're supposed to, and demons are just not. In God's sovereign wisdom, what you find is that ultimately, that's an important word, ultimately, Demons and angels will serve the same final purpose. So angels and demons ultimately serve to accomplish God's purposes, his working in the world whether they want to or not. So when Satan comes to God, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan does all these things to, to Job. And in the end, Job is praising God. So what Satan did for evil purposes, God worked for good 
purposes. It's like what you find in, uh, in Genesis 50, right? Jo- John, not John, Joseph, there it is. Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That is what we see constantly again and again. The demons are working their evil, nefarious plots. Satan is trying to do his best to undermine, to subvert God's uh, works. And ultimately, all it does is serve to accomplish exactly what God had planned to happen. God is sovereign. It's amazing. And both angels and demons glorify God. So in the end, angels are praising God for his glory and all creation will praise God for his final defeat of Satan and his demons. So they too serve to exist to glorify God through their own destruction. So angels and demons, right? Singer soldiers, demons fell. You'd think, oh, that didn't work out so well. Actually, God had a purpose through it all the entire time because he is absolutely in control. It's just amazing. I mean, it's, it's one of those things you just look at and you're blown away. Uh, very briefly, let me just throw some application at you. I had to put these poetically. First, follow the angelic awe. Follow the angelic awe. You will see constantly throughout the Bible, angels are praising singing to God, saying, how amazing is he? What do we sing every Christmas? Hark, the herald angels sing. You know what hark means? Hark means listen, hear, listen up. The angels are amazed at this. Look at what they're telling you God has done. Hark, listen up. If 10,000s upon 10,000s of these singer soldiers, of these warrior poets are looking at what God is doing and they're blown away, Surely we should be too. Follow the angelic awe. Second, fear not the demonic animosity. So much, so much of what the Bible says about Satan and demons simply serves to emphasize the beauty and glory of Christ's power and victory over them. I mean, it's amazing. Every time they try to do something, we're like, oh, well, God got them again. He's really in control. He's really sovereign. He's really defeated them. Romans 8 asks a really, really good question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. I am sure neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Martin Luther, famous, famous hymn we sing here. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath, hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His wrath we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's our God. That's his might over demons, so fear not. But number three and number four are kind of two sides of the same coin here. Avoid the common mistakes about angels and demons out there. Avoid the common mistakes. The first would be to disregard, right? To avoid this reality, act like it doesn't exist. Don't do that. There is a supernatural realm. It exists. The Bible reveals it. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion. Don't act like half of reality isn't real. It is. Resist the devil. But the second error, of course, would be to obsess over angels and demons. 
to fixate on them. I hope you walk away from this class and think, oh, I know a little more about what the Bible teaches about angels and demons and, and I'm more equipped to walk in godliness and uh, I'm, I'm ready to think through some of the things that are out there, but I don't want you to walk away fixating, focusing, saying, I need to, I need to study, learn so much about you know, the demons over in you know, this whatever tribe in Africa or whatever. No, 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 no. Study the word. Sure, read theology. Do those things. Read the books I recommend. Listen to the rap song I recommend. It's very good. Take you four minutes. But don't fixate. Don't focus on them because the Bible doesn't. Like I said, we, we're seeing these little glimpses in the windows, getting a sense of this story. But that's all we're given. So clearly that's enough. We don't need more than we have. God has given us all we need in his word. Fifth and finally, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. One, you were saved from the demonic rule, Colossians 2. That's amazing. That's what God saved you from. You were a servant of Satan under his power, and Jesus called you and you came. How amazing is that? Jesus specifically says, in that passage where the disciples come and say, wow, it's amazing, the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, yeah, they are. But verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. How amazing is that? Your, Jesus took a pen, dipped it in his blood, and wrote your name in heaven. That is amazing. Focus on that. Don't fixate on demons and angels and things. Fixate on that. That will hold your gaze forever. You deserve the lake of fire and God puts you in the boundless ocean of his grace. That's amazing. Let's pray and we have a few minutes for questions. Jesus, thank you that you wrote our names in heaven. Thank you that you are sovereign over all. That there is nothing we could ever fear, nothing we could ever face. That you have conquered. Father, help us to bask in that truth. And keep us from, from fear. From being overly fixated, from worrying about Satan and his plots. Keep us from focusing too much on that, but God also keep us from forgetting it. Help us to know we have an enemy. He's prowling around like a lion, Father. So help us to be alert and to resist him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.